Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Another shutdown countdown is upon us. If you're thinking, didn't we just go through one? You're right. All this uncertainty is taking a toll on agency operations and the folks that run the places. To get an idea of how these constant battles could affect things going forward, Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you as well. So I guess just give me the status update of what you're hearing and how things are going to look going forward. Look, you said it exactly right, which is we're back in the soup again. And it's a, you know, it's an ugly place to be. It's remarkably foolish way to run our government. It's bad on all fronts, even if we wind up avoiding uh, a shutdown again. Uh, The reality is that managers and leaders across the entire government are having to spend their time preparing for the possibility of a shutdown rather than focusing 100% of their energies on the mission in front of them. So it's enormously wasteful. And, you know, the idea that this is a fight over federal resources, this is the poorest of all ways to actually manage them. It also has long-term consequence to the morale of the existing workforce and the potential for bringing in the new generation of talent that we desperately need. Let's focus on those managers first. I mean, what can you really do when you have no control over the situation and it's a helpless feeling, but you're trying to kind of gauge your workers towards, you know, what they want to do? Is it just to best try to keep them to stay on task or what's the best solution there? Well, it's a great point that you're making. And, you know, obviously individual federal leaders are not going to be able to ultimately influence the current crisis. I would say over the longer term, It'd be very helpful for leaders across government to help quantify and storytell around the costs of these kinds of log jams. And uh, I think part of the problem is that most people see this as a political battle rather than the reality of it being that it's actually hurting Americans across the board. So those stories are not being told. So I think that it's really important for federal employees and anyone listening to this, share your story with us. You know, if we wind up with a shutdown and you get furloughed, Tell us what's not happening. Tell us what's not happening in terms of focusing on preparing for a shutdown. That kind of storytelling is very powerful. I think for any manager inside government, it's really important that they put themselves in the shoes of the employees that they're supervising. And it is very disheartening to not have any idea about what's going to happen. Uncertainty is the bane of good management. And part of it is to call it what it is and to be communicating. I think Unfortunately, from the very top of government, there's a tendency to hold back on communicating because the leadership, White House and beyond, doesn't want to give any credence to the possibility of a shutdown. I actually think that's not the choice that is the best one for our government. But I think individual managers should be connecting with their employees, talking to them, figuring out where their heads are at. And even if you can't offer a solution for a Congress, You can be a colleague that helps them, you know, see their way beyond this. And I come back to mission. Most federal employees are there because they care about serving the public. And this is an interruption in the ability to do that. But they will be able to return full energy to their work eventually. And hopefully that is sustaining. 
Speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, you make a great point about some of those stories not being told. Personally, I know of several people who this is right around the Thanksgiving holiday and they have to say no to taking those trips just because they don't know if they're going to have a paycheck when they come back. You know, as employees, uh, what are you hearing from the government workers themselves and some of the hardships that this affects them as? Yeah, no, look, I think you're so right. This affects people in, in all kinds of ways. And, you know, again, a continuing resolution is only good in the context of something worse, but it's not a great way of managing our resources either. So I welcome, honestly, the stories that you're hearing and all your listeners, because we'll do our best to circulate them. And we are also trying to provide resources to federal employees on our website that you can go to ourpublicservice.org because, you know, federal employees need support right now. But I think it's really important for federal employees to understand how poorly the American public really understands what they do. And frankly, a lot of that is on our government's not communicating effectively. When you say federal government, most Americans think about bickering politicians in Washington. We need to change that narrative so that they begin to think more about the career civil servants who are serving them across the entire country. And if we did that, our research shows you would see a very different perspective on our government and trust in our government. I'm curious, every time we go through one of these, you know, usually the public face of the federal employee who's affected is first and foremost, our members of armed services, which obviously, you know, that's true in itself. But for some reason, the regular federal employee, run of the mill federal employee just never seems to become the face of dealing with these things. Yeah, you're right. And I think that part of it is, first of all, we need Americans to understand that uniformed folk are also federal employees. And interestingly, I think it's close to 40% of the civilian workforce are veterans. So it really is in many ways, one in the same workforce. And the reason why Americans don't picture or know about the career civil servants is that, you know, one, they're an incredibly modest group. They don't tell their own stories. And by and large, the infrastructure inside our government in public affairs and elsewhere is designed to either protect or sometimes tell the story of the secretary and not of the broader workforce. So we actually need to equip and encourage the public affairs offices and beyond to tell the good stories about what's happening inside government. The reality, I think, is that you have this huge infrastructure to find problems in our government from IGs to often the media to congressional oversight. And I think that, you know, problem finding is easy. Problem solving is where the game is. And you need to identify solutions and people who are doing promising things if you're ever going to convert those problems into actually better service for the American public. So the broader metric for me is, is there a recognition culture in government? Do we have leaders who are actually promoting the good work as much, if not more than identifying the problems? And, you know, we have a programs like the Service to America Medals where we try to do that. But that's one of what should be a whole arsenal of, of activities uh, that the federal government's doing and those on the outside, too. Yeah, let's focus on those problems and let, let's solve all the world's problems right here, Matt Steyer. <laughs> uh, are there any measures that the partnership itself uh, supports in trying to prevent situations like this one? Absolutely. I mean, there's actually some very good legislation that Senators Langford and Hassan have introduced, and there are other examples, but that, there's the one that has, has been longest standing and most interesting to me. But it frankly would hold accountable the people who should be held accountable, and that's the members of Congress. It's their job. It's actually their job to get the appropriations done, and they haven't done it in regular order since the late 1990s. So this legislation would essentially say, 
you don't do your job, you don't get paid. And guess what? The public's not going to pay for you to jet home or anything else like that until you do your job. And it really, you know, holds them accountable in a way that I think would be really meaningful. I think you need broader, you know, appropriations budget reform. Plainly, doing this every year results in you know a constant string of CRs at, in the best case scenario. So why not make it biannually so that you actually can get this process having more meaning and in a longer term focus for feds that they can plan on. I mean, part of the challenge here is, you know, you give a month of funding that where you can't shut down programs or start new ones. You know, it's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to eat that full loaf of bread, but I'm going to buy it slice by slice. You're going to pay a lot more money. It's going to be a whole lot harder to plan if you can't actually get the you know, the long runway of, a, of the full loaf. So there are all kinds of ways that we could improve the system. Part of the challenge here is we lurch from crisis to crisis. And honestly, we need the public to be demanding better. And part of that begins by the public understanding what they're losing. The crazy thing is it costs more to shut the government down than to run it. And so, you know, if the idea here is to try to save money, uh, this is the stupidest possible approach possible. Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Thank you so much. Thank you. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.